Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. And I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone. This is Gustavo Gutierrez Suarez, one of the hosts of New Books in Film, a podcast series of the New Books Network. Today, we are here with Professor Olivier Dellers, Associate Professor of French and Chair of the Department of Languages, Literatures and Cultures at the University of Richmond, USA. Hello, Professor Dellers, and welcome to New Books in Film. Hello, thank you for having me today. Thank you so much for being here and talking to us about Wim Benders, Making Films That Matter, a book published by Bloomsbury in 2020. And this is a book you recently co-edited with Professor Martin Solzer-Reichel. Um, I'm really happy to have this interview and thus offer our audience a close-up look uh, to this outstanding anthology of essays about Wim Benders, a filmmaker we highly admire. Professor Dellers, um, before we start to talk about your book itself, could you please tell us about um, your academic life and the previous work you have been doing? Sure. Um, so, um, as you as you mentioned, I'm a professor of French, um, and so my PhD is in French literature. Um, I came to Wim Wenders very indirectly. My um, dissertation was about the 18th century French novel, and so I wrote a book um, um, about the topic that was published in 2015. Um, it's a book where I looked at a number of um, 18th century novels and uh, tried to think about the economic discourse in those novels and how the economic um, discourse showed different ways, different forms of behavior, um, and um, how that changed in the 18th century. Um, after finishing the book, um, I worked on uh, the Marquis de Sade. So again, something that's very far away from vendors and published a number of essays on visual representations of the Marquis de Sade in 20th century um, artworks and films. And in a way, this is what got me interested, again, very indirectly, and I can tell you more later on about how I came to vendors. But uh, the essays that I published on the Marquis de Sade were very much about the topic of intermediality and transmediality. So um, conceptually, the work um, I was doing on Sade 
has a certain proximity with uh, the work that I did on uh, vendors and with the collection of essay that I just published. Well, um, now, uh, how did you become interested in, in Vim Vendor's uh, filmography and, and how did you start to work on, on, on this anthology? Could you please tell us about um, the genesis and the process behind this book? Right, sure. So there's kind of a long story here and a short story, right? So the long story starts probably uh, when I'm... 11. Um, so I grew up in France. I grew up in a small town not too far from Germany. It's in Pont-à-Mousson in Lorraine. And uh, when I was 11, so first year of middle school, um, I started learning German. And that summer, so the summer after the first year of middle school, I actually spent three weeks in East Germany. This was in 1989, the last summer of East Germany before the Berlin Wall fell. Um, so I was interested in German culture. I was passionate about the German language and speaking German. And so as I grew up, um, I uh, started watching films, German films, when I was 14 and 15. Um, and of course, the films that were available at that time in my public library were films by Wim Wenders. So when I was 15, 16, I watched Alice in the Cities. Um, I watched Paris, Texas. I watched Wings of Desire. And I thought those films were beautiful. You know, they were transformative for me. Um, the, those are the films that, um, uh, those were films that I loved, films that I remembered um, as I was doing many other things, learning English, um, getting a PhD in French literature. Wim Wenders was always at the back of my imagination um, as someone I admired, someone who was transformative for me. And so, um, so that's kind of a, the long story. The short story is actually um, a, a funny story. Um, I, I'm, I'm good friends with my co-editor, Martin Solsa-Reichel, and um, we teach in the same department. Um, he teaches Arabic, teaches German, I teach French, and uh, we had taught together a number of courses on sort of French and Arab influences. And one day by the elevator, uh, we were just joking, and I told him, I said, hey, let's teach a, let's teach, teach a course on Vim vendors. Um, how fun would that be to just teach something on vendors? And his reaction was like, yeah, that sounds really, that sounds like fun. And I was like, great, let's do it. And so we started teaching a um, first-year um, seminar, so a seminar for first-year students about Vim vendors. And that's really how we, the two of us, started rediscovering vendors. Uh, we had seen a number of the films, but we were really not experts on vendors. Um, actually, we didn't know much, right? We just know we liked him. We were fans. And so by teaching this class, uh, teaching the films to college students, um, it really gave us a sense of um, how much we still liked vendors, but also gave us a sense that by watching all his films in a semester, right, in 15 weeks, 16 weeks, um, really gave us a sense of how integrated um, his body of work was, right, the logic behind his work. So it's not just that there's Alice in the Cities in 1974 and then Wings of Desire in 1987 and then Buena Vista Social Club in 1999. Those films are not different. They're deeply integrated within a certain vision of cinema. And so that's how we came to Vendors. we taught the class for uh, a number of years, and then in 2000, and I think it was 2015, um, I suggested to Martin that we should do a conference on Vim vendors. Uh, we were lucky to have funds from uh, the University of Richmond to organize the conference. Um, we invited a number of people from um, all over the world. We have guests from Japan. We had um, a film scholar from Australia. 
We had the director of the Vendors Foundation uh, that came and gave a talk. Um, we had a um, documentary filmmaker that um, did a documentary of, on vendors um, in the 2000s. Um, so, yeah, some great scholars, but also artists, people that worked with vendors. And so the book that we eventually published in 2020 was the logical continuation of this conference, right? So uh, all of the articles in the book are based on contributions during the conference. They're sort of expanded versions, uh, more fleshed out versions of uh, what we discussed during the conference. Right. Well, um, the book starts um, by arguing that uh, there um, there was uh, a lack of scholar studies on beam vendors filmography in the last two decades. Um, in your view, what, what what was the cause of of this academic situation about vendors' work? So yeah, I mean it's 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 interesting because it's not just the two, the last two decades. In a way, it's since the 1970s, right? It's not that no one's worked on vendors or that vendors is not popular, but he's not the most popular of the new German filmmakers. Um, so uh, Fassbinder, for example, is still people love Fassbinder. They write about Fassbinder. There's a sort of there's a sense of we understand his work. When it comes to vendors, there's been a couple of books in the 1990s, um, especially after Wings of Desire. That's a film that really was transformative and that um, scholars really looked at closely. Uh, but um, for a lot of the min- what you would call the minor films, there's less that has been written. And it's particularly st- striking in the last two decades, right? You know, the last book on vendors dates from 2002. And since then, uh, mostly there were, I mean, there were a few things here and there um, about his collaboration with Peter Hanke, for example, and then sort of essays that there was no real sense of direction in terms of what the what vendors' work meant uh, globally, right, over a period of 40, 50 years since, 1970, since the 1970s, but also in the past 20 years. So, for example, there's very little work done on films that came after Wings of Desire, right? So, Lisbon Story, fascinating film. There's a whole um, um, there's a new trilogy on Los Angeles, uh, films like Million Dollar Hotels, The End of Violence, um, um, and later on, Land of Plenty. Um, documentary films, a tiny bit on Buena Vista Social Club, tiny bit on Pina, but really not as much as should have been published. Uh, this, those films should be disc- discussed, and this is really where we thought that we could make a contribution, um, that there is, there's something that's missing there. Now, the reason for it, um, you know, it's, it's, it's interesting to speculate about why. I think for me, um, there are two reasons that you can... You can sort of you can hypothesize, right? You can there's two hypotheses. The first one is that Vendors is a very esoteric filmmaker, right? He's not someone that sort of that's easy to understand. Um, he's not telling stories. He's not telling compelling stories. His, his style of storytelling is very indirect, and so that means that the connection between the viewer. And then the scholar and the film is of a very different nature than it is for other types of filmmakers. So I think that's one reason. Um, the second reason I think is connected to, especially for the films that were done in the past 20, 25 years, is that most of these films were not received well by film critics. So not scholars, but film critics. So when you know you need something in the French newspapers, German newspa- newspapers, uh, American magazines, uh, maybe also in the, um, um, uh, in the, the Spanish-speaking world, um, 
people don't understand his films, right? Uh, if you look at reviews for Million Dollar Hotel, it's not a great film. Uh, you look at um, a more recent film, for example, um, the film um, uh, I'm thinking about um, uh, Everything Will Be Fine in 2015 with James Franco. Again, uh, most critics would argue that this is a terrible film. It doesn't work. The pace is not good. The story doesn't work. Um, and so I think that's the second reason, right? So there's, uh, film critics don't like those films. And so as a result, there's the sense that Vendors has lost his touch, right? That um, he's no longer able to make films like Wings of Desire, like Paris, Texas, like Alice in the Cities. So I think to me, those are the two reasons why there's a lack of scholarship on Vendors. Um, so, um, in your view, what are the main differences between Vender's filmography in the last two decades and his early works from the 70s to the 90s? Right. So, I mean, we could talk about that for a while. Uh, there's a lot of differences. Uh, let me try to mention a few. Um, I mean, the first one, obviously, the, world, the work from the 1970s is very German. Right. Um, there's the Road Trilogy, uh, Alice in the Cities, Kings of the Road, Wrong Move. Those are German films. Um, then in the 80s, uh, there's some um, American quote-unquote films. I think Paris, Texas is a good example of that. Um, uh, Venice works with Coppola. Um, the State of Thing is a European film, but that's really about um, Hollywood and um, being part of the Hollywood commercial film system. Um, and um, the last film that really makes a mark in terms of commercial success and um, uh, filmic success is Wings of Desire, which is a film out of everything, right? It's the film that is about Germany, but it's also about philosophy. It's about angels. Uh, it's about me. It's about you. It's, it's one of those um, uh, all-encompassing films. So what happens in the, at the end of the 1980s, beginning of the 1990s? Um, I mean, I think there's a, there are a few things that happened. Um, vendors is, there's a re, what you could call a religious turn. Um, so if you look at Until the End of the World um, and then uh, Far Away So Close, those are films that are much more informed by vendors' interest in faith. Um, and faith, to a certain extent, is it doesn't work with postmodernity, right? Postmodernity, the kind of postmodern... Um, uh, postmodern feel that you get in Wings of Desire um, is is no longer there as you watch films like Until the End of the World, Far Away So Close, and What Comes After. Um, Vendor said, it's, it's actually an interesting um, reflection, um, he said himself that he doesn't want to make, he didn't want to make another film like Wings of Desire, and that he has lost the recipe to make a film like this. So he's also a filmmaker that has progressed in his idea of what filmmaking means, but he's progressed in a direction that doesn't work as well for film critics and doesn't work as well for film scholars. Um, so a, a film that I really like and um, that I think is exemplifies how Vendus changes is um, the 1994 film Lisbon Story. Um, Lisbon Story is supposed to be a narrative fiction, right? It's the story of a man who goes to Lisbon and searches for his friend and eventually finds him. But it's also a film essay. It's a film about music. Uh, it's a film about the story of, it's a film about the city of Lisbon and memor memorializing the city of Lisbon. So it's no longer, a f it's a film that um, doesn't fit 
the normal framework of what you would expect from a filmmaker like Vendors. It's not a documentary. It's not a normal narrative film. Uh, it's, not, it's not just a film essay. Um, and so this is probably in this film that you find a lot of the future interests of vendors in that you see in the 2000s and 2010s. And mm-hmm. um, and what continuities can we find from the early vendors films like Alice in the Cities or Paris, Texas, to recent films such as A Million Dollar Hotel, Pina, or The Salt of the Earth? Right. So we, we actually, uh, Martin and I, talk a little bit about this in our introduction. Um, there are a number of continuities. Um, the first one, um, interestingly enough, is that vendors is still not very good at telling stories. But that's his strength, right? Um, the, he always tells the stories indirectly, uh, elliptically. Um, uh, and um, he, I think he has a sort of um, very healthy uh, fear of st- telling stories that are too direct or that make too much sense. And so this is something that you still find in a film like Everything Will Be Fine um, or um, Land of Plenty, for example, in the, in the 2000s. Um, the second continuity is, and I think that's the most important really, is fa- a fascination with images. Right. Um, and ex- so this is um, something that you uh, see in his documentaries. Um, um, what's the purpose of making films? What's the purpose of capturing images? Uh, What are we doing uh, with this fantastic medium, photography, the camera? um, And what is the role of filmic and photographic images? If you go back to Alice in the Cities, uh, we have um, Philip Vinter, the photographer, who's already trying at that time to think about what it means to look, to see, to record. If you remember the beginning of that film, he's on the beach and looking at a number of Polaroids that he's taken. But those Polaroids don't make complete sense. So there's a disconnect between the objects that he's seeing and the images that he's producing by those objects. And I think this is a good um, thematic um, continuity between all the different films is that Vendors is always thinking about the role of images in contemporary society. And he does that through his films, but also through his writings. And an important book that came out in 2013, excuse me, in 2013 is a book that he co-wrote with Mary Zornazi, Inventing Peace, a Dialogue of, of Perception. So this idea of perception is really something that you can see in all of his films. And why why is um, this book, um, Inventing Peace, so important for film scholars in particular? Yeah, so um, Inventing Peace is a book that um, Vendors co-wrote with a uh, an Australian professor, philosopher, sociologist. Her name is Mary Zornazi. She actually came to the conference that we organized, so we got to know her a little bit. Um, she's a very interesting person. Um, who's interested in the power of images. And I think when the two of them met, they started a dialogue um, about peace and images. And it took them about 10 years to write the book. Um, The book starts in 2002, 2003, um, right around the time of the war in Iraq, when uh, I'm sure you remember the, um, the Television was constantly, show, constantly showing images of violence, right? It starts with 9-11, then there's the invasion of Iraq. So it's a, a world that was permeated with images of violence. And this is really where the book starts, right? It, book, it, 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 it starts with a reflection on 
um, what kind of images are available to us and the fact that most images that we see on a daily basis are images that are full of violence. And so Vendors and Zonazi try to think of what a visual aesthetics of peace would look like, right? Um, it's actually hard to, so if, you know, the, the, the question here is, um, if you want to visualize peace, what does it look like? Um, and that's actually very hard to imagine, right? You know, we, um, peace is more of a feeling, but it's not really um, something that you can transcribe on an image. I mean, you can, when you think of peace, you can think about, you know, a beautiful sunset at the beach, but that's really not peace. It's a peaceful image. Um, so that's really one of the um, central questions that Ven with which Vendors and Zonazi start the book. It's also, I think, an important book because it's the first time that Vendors attempts to be more, I want to say, theoretical or even use the word scholarly about his books um, or about his films and about his work. Um, Vendors is someone who has written quite a bit. So if you you know look around, um, you'll see that he's published a number of books. But those books are usually collections of essays, and they're essays from the perspective of Vendors as a filmmaker, right? They're reflections on filmmaking coming from someone who is a filmmaker. In um, in Vending Peace, the fact that he's working with someone who's a professor, who is someone who has a doctorate, uh, not in film studies, but in sociology, in anthropology, in philosophy, it sort of forces him to engage with um, scholarship, right? The scholarly world, the world of the academic world. So I think that's also a book that's important um, in, in, that, in, in, that, uh, in that sense. Um, it also feels like a book that summarizes 40 years of making images and thinking about images. So if you look at the book, you'll see that it's really divided into two types of voices. Um, Mary Zonazi tries, tends to provide a sort of framework. And then Vendor's contribution has much more to do with um, sort of short essays uh, that he writes in a sort of free prose style. And those essays are ways for him of uh, ways for him of reflecting on the nature of cinema, the role of images, um, and um, about how his thinking about images has evolved over a period of time, has um, he's been practicing the art of making films. Yes. Um, do you consider um, that... Um there is a relation between this book, Inventing Peace, and a film like Tokyo Ga, uh, in which Venders um, reflects about the purpose and essence of film? Yes, ab absolutely. Um, so, you know, Tokyo Ga is interesting because it's the most important documentary that no one has seen. Uh, it's easier to see it now because thanks to YouTube, right? You, know, you can just go on YouTube, type Vendors Tokyo Gam, and you have access to that film. Uh, when I was growing up, right, when you were growing up, this, is, this was not on VHS. It took a long time for it to come on DVD. And so people knew about Tokyo Ga and knew how important it was to Vendor's career uh, and Vendor's filmography, but people had not seen the film. Um, and it's, it's really fascinating to watch the film today. I mean, the film is, comes out in, I think, in uh, 1985. It's shot... Um, before and after Vendors Makes Paris, Texas. So it's really a film that comes at a central moment in his career. Um, and the center of the film, it's not really about Tokyo. I mean, it is about Tokyo, but it's not really about Tokyo. It's about Japan and not really about Japan. The center of the film is really Ozu, right? Yasujiro Ozu, uh, the Japanese filmmaker, um, and 
trying to understand why um, there is this fascination with Ozu's film, and in particular with Tokyo Story, right? Um, uh, the, the Ozu's film from the 1950s. So Tokyo Ga is a reflection on Ozu. It's a reflection. It's a way. I think it's a way of understanding how Ozu creates a certain atmosphere in his films. And in, interestingly enough, in inventing peace. Um, Vendor spends a lot of time thinking and talking about Ozu um, because to him, Ozu is the person that helps him think about creating images of peace, creating peaceful images. And Vendor gives actually two examples. Um, he sort of narrows it down to two things that Ozu does. Um, if you look at Ozu's film, there are two features that are particularly important. The first one is the lens, the camera lens that he uses. It's a 50 millimeter ca uh, camera lens that makes things appear just a little bit closer. So there's this sense of proximity with the characters in Ozu's film. The second thing is that Ozu always positions the camera at uh, eye level, right? So the camera doesn't look um, up, uh, doesn't look down on the characters. Uh, the camera looks straight. And actually, sometimes um, Ozu is actually filming from a sitting position. And so this is a very what Vendors calls a very humble position. So there's closeness and the sense of humbleness. And to Vendors, this creates a sense of hospitality, right? Ozu's films are very hospitable. When you watch a film by Ozu, you feel like you are home, right? Hospitable in the sense of being home, of feeling like you're home. And uh, Vendors um, tries to emulate and maybe recreate um, some of the techniques that Ozu um, uses in the 1950s and 1960s in his um, in his films. Um, and this is something that's particularly visible in Vendors' films from the um, second decade of the 20th century of the 21st century. Um, so I've mentioned everything will be fine. Um, this is all something you see in Pina very indirectly. Uh, Beautiful Days of Aaron Ruiz. Um, so those are films that um, where the camera is very close to the characters, and there are also films that take time. Right, there are films that spend time with the characters, um, and to and and when for vendors, this is a way of creating this sense of peace, this sense of community, this sense of belonging uh, between viewer and the characters. Well, you mentioned um, an interesting term. You mentioned uh, hospitality. Um, last week, um, um, we interviewed uh, Professor Jennifer Fay about her newest book, Inhospitable World. <laughs> And we talk about uh, this um, this tension between a, um, a peaceful image in Vendor's film and a real production of of catastrophic uh, views, uh, war views, like like war war images, as you mentioned. So, um, do you think that um, there is a, a particular concern in Vendor's film about? Um, providing um, images, uh, peaceful images? Uh, do you think that is, it is a concern that we can find um, in, in the last um, period of his filmography? Or, or what, what do you think about it? Yeah, that's, that's, that's a great question. Um, 
mean, I think you know the first thing to that's that's important to recognize is that inventing peace is published in 2013. So this reflection on peaceful images, on a peaceful gaze, it's something I think that Venus becomes conscious of later in his career, right? So um, can you find traces of it in earlier films? Absolutely. But it's also something that only comes to be theorized, to be conceptualized by Venus himself later in his career in the, you know, in the, um, in the 21st century. Um, it's also something that is, in a sense, both exciting intellectually, but also hard to hard to decipher and hard to notice in the films. Um, because I think Vendors has a hunch that this is important, and I agree with him. Uh, this idea of hospitable worlds, hospitable images, um, hospital, hospitable filmmaking is a fascinating notion. Um, the question, and I don't think he gets to solve that in um, Inventing Peace, uh, the question is, how, what kind of images, what, what, what do those images look like? What is a hospitable image? What is a peaceful image? And uh, so, yes, you do find, um, I think, in um, his latest films, a way of approaching filmmaking, a way of approaching storytelling, a way of approaching characters and their relation to the audience that is that has a different feel. Right. Um, the, the film that comes to mind for me is actually Everything Will Be Fine, which is a beautiful film that um, I think none of people have seen. It's also a film that was made originally in 3D, and we can talk more about 3D later on. Um, but this is a film where uh, Vendors is really trying to play with the idea of proximity, of slowness, of hospitability. And this takes different... Um, this is different. It's, it takes different dimensions. Um, the first one, you can sort of actually see that in the opening sequence. The opening sequence is simply focusing the camera on specific objects and spending time with objects. Um, you can also see that uh, later on um, with uh, the work uh, of um, so vendors has always been interested in windows, for example, and seeing characters through windows. And this is again something that's repeated over and over again. And the windows provide a sort of uh, mirror image sometimes, but also a visual break between um, or a visual um, a visual border between the character and the camera. It's a second lens of sort, right? It's a second mirror. It's a second pane of glass uh, between the characters and and the camera. Um, so I think those are instances where you um, see this attempt at making peaceful images, uh, but I'm not sure that it has been fully realized in any of the films that he's made in the past 10 years or 15 years. Mm -hmm. uh, you quote uh, Vendor's Passage, um, a film can promote the idea of change without any political message whatsoever, but in its form and language can tell people what that they can change their lives and contribute to progressive changes in the world. Any movie that has that spirit and says things can be changed is worth making. How should we understand this vendor's statement, in particular his idea of change? Yes, I'm glad you mentioned this quote because this is really the the quote that um, uh, that we use to invite people to the conference, right? This was the quote that we said. This is an important quote by Vendors. It's a more recent quote, um, and it's a quote that 
needs to be I'm, I'm glad you mentioned it because it needs to be deciphered it needs to be, to be it needs to be read closely um, I think there are a few things here that we should we should we should think about um, the first one is um, that change for vendors is not necessarily at least in his work as a filmmaker is not necessarily something that is social economical cultural um, it's not it's not revolutionary right you know this is change it, it's not a it's not about transforming society necessarily um, that's an important part of his work um, it's impossible to deny it but uh, when he talks about change I think he talks about change at almost a more um, ontological level or epistemological level um, and I think so so ontological in the sense that Change is about the individual, and so making film, um, making making cinema, the art of making sim cinema is about transforming the individual and our relationship with the individual. Epistemological, in the sense that change is always processed through or understood through um, the 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 medium that we use to talk about change, to produce change. And of course, Vendor's medium is cinema, it's photography, it's making images. And so it's epistemological in the sense that Vendor's keeps thinking about um, what it is in the art form that he uses that produces, that um, includes um, the possibility of transformation. Um, and, and so um, I, I think this is, this is, to me, the way, this is the way I understand this quote is, um, it's not about political change or um, you know, um, uh, electing new people and, and transforming the world this way. It's about the possibility of understanding the world in different ways through, um, through, a, through a medium, the medium of photography, the medium of making images. I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. These are two-minute meals. Factor meals are ready to eat in heat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. They're flexible for your schedule. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math, and this is important. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com slash NBN50 and use code NBN50 to get 50% off. That's code NBN50 at factormeals.com slash nbn50 to get 50% off. Adaptation and intermediality are the first overarching themes that stand out in the recent scholarship on vendors. How can we find these two aspects, adaptation and intermediality, in vendors' filmography? Yeah, so you know, this, this is actually interesting, and this was a surprise to us when we started doing research on vendors and um, you know, think about writing the book and writing the introduction to the book. Uh, we tried to see, um, with doing a simple exercise, what has been published on vendors in the past 20 years. And surprisingly, we found a lot of articles and actually a whole book uh, written on intermediality in vendors' films. 
Uh, so people have been talking a lot about intermediality. So intermediality is this kind of transposition of a text from one medium to another medium. So for example, it's the same idea of adaptation, right? You have a book, how do you turn the book into a film? Uh, you have a play, how do you turn the play into a musical, right? So um, uh, this is something that, um, in a way, was very obvious in Vendor's work. Vendor's has always worked with others. He's always adapted work. Uh, but it was it's interesting to think of it from this more conceptual place, um, this more inter- inter- conceptual notion of intermediality and transmediality. Of course, um, I mean, the way you see it in Vendor's films, the first one is very obvious, is through the connection with Peter Hanke. Uh, Peter Hanke, the Austrian writer, um, Nobel Prize winner a few years back. Um, Vendor's and Hanke have collaborated on several different films. Um, the first one is actually Vendor's first film, uh, The Goalkeeper's Fear of the Penalty, penalty Kick, uh, which was an adaptation by Vendor's of a novel by Hanke. Um, when Vendors is making Alice in the Cities, is also not adapting anything by Hanke, but he's sort of influenced, um, inspired by um, sort of the postmodern view of the world that Hanke develops in his books at the time. Um, Vendors and Hanke collaborate again, this time on Wrong Moves. So this is the film that Vendors makes after Alice in the Cities, uh, Falsche Bewegung in German. Um, and in this case, this is kind of an interesting story of adaptation. The original story is a story by Goethe. So it's an 18th century story uh, by Goethe, adapted by Hanke and put into film by vendors, right? So this is where you start seeing the importance of the intermedial work. It's not just I'm taking Goethe and adapting into a film. Is I'm The source text is Goethe. It goes through the filter of Peter Hanke, um, important novelist who produces a script that reimagines the story of Willem Meister and eventually put into images into a different medium, right? The medium of films um, by Vendor's imagination. So this is kind of the third example. So we have first one is adaptation. Second one is just inspiration. Uh, the third one is sort of working together with many voices, voices of the past, Goethe, voices of the present, Hanke, and then different media, right? um, the media of the novel in the uh, 18th century, um, the novel of the script produced by Hanke, and then the medium of film. And then, of course, maybe the the best example, and I think the most uh, the most interesting is Wings of Desire, where Wings of Desire is not it's a film written by vendors, right? It's something that vendors vendors writes the scripts, imagines the story, but it's deeply deeply inspired um, by um, um, a poem that Hanke produces for the film called Song of Childhood. So if you remember Wings of Desires and when a child was a child, this is sort of how the the film begins. And this is a film in which Hanke is only one of the voices that is adapted, that is reused, uh, that is featured in the film. Um, The film is also inspired by Walter Benjamin, uh, by Paul Klee, the Angel of History. Um, um, So... Yeah, that's, so intermediality, once you start thinking about vendors and his work, becomes this sort of overarching, overarchingly important concept um, that, um, that um, can help you think about both the importance of other voices in his films, but also the importance of thinking across different media, right? Uh, and thinking with different media. Mm-hmm. And... How should we appreciate ekphrasis in Vendor's films? 
especially in relation with with painting, uh, for instance, in relation to Hopper paintings. Yeah, so I mean, so exorcist is probably not the right term to use. Um, I mean, I know I use it in the book certainly, and I, I think it's 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 a great sort of metaphor for what he's doing. Um, but it's he's not technically uh, doing any exorcist in the traditional sense of the term. But you're right that there is a constant desire in Vendor's film to think with paintings. So we're still in an intermediate relationship, but this is no longer between a novel or a script writer and the filmmaker. Now this is an intermediate relationship between a painting or a painter and the filmmaker, right? Um, and this is something that I think has uh, really fascinated Vendor since he was um, a student in Paris um, in the 1960s interested in painting. Um, this is, it's the relation between filmmaking and painting. It's also the way that certain images um, um, become part of our memory, our, our visual memory, and come back and recur in different moments, um, different creative moments. In Vendor's work, you can see that through different artists. Uh, you mentioned Hopper, um, and certainly Vendor's is deeply influenced by Hopper. I think from the beginning, I mean, you can see traces of Hopper in um, in, in, in Alice in the Cities. Uh, you can see um, certainly traces of Hopper in, um, um, in The American Friend. Um, Lightning Over Water, the documentary, Hammett. Um, and then later on, there are more obvious traces of Hopper, for example, in um, The End of Violence, where Venus actually um, recreates uh, Nighthawk, the famous Hopper painting, on the set of a fictional film that he's um, filming. So that's kind of this whole mise en abime of filmmaking that Vendor uses in connection with the intermediate, in the intermediate relation between painting and film. Um, so Hopper, certainly, um, um, Vermeer in uh, Until the End of the World, Andrew Wyeth, who's also a very important American painter. Uh, this is something that you see in um, Everything Will Be Fine, for example, especially with the painting Christina's World. Um, Vendors actually filmed the painting, but didn't include it in the film. So there's all the sort of, all this, and if you, you could probably write a book about uh, uh, Vendors' um, uh, painterly gaze, because it's, 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 in ev it's almost in every film in different ways that Vendors borrows, recreates, reimagines um, different paintings and uses that as inspiration for his own films. Um, you arc um, that um, Wings of Desire is uh, the boiling point of the vendors and Hanke relationship in which uh, the common thread of their collaboration, um, a melancholy self-reflexivity is most fully realized. Um, in your view, do you consider that this melancholy self-reflexivity uh, remains in Vendor's last films? Hmm. Inter interesting question. Um, I don't know. I mean, I haven't thought about it um, too much. Um, so, I mean, of course, we need to make a distinction between uh, documentaries and feature films, right? Um, so, self-reflexivity is certainly an important part of his work as a documentary filmmaker uh, in the sense that every documentary that he makes is also about the art of making a documentary. Um, so yes, I think self-reflexivity is certainly part of what he does 
in the years that follow Wings of Desire. Actually, it becomes more and more self-reflexive. It becomes more and more about vendors thinking through his films about what it means to, to make a film, what it means to produce images, what it means to capture images. Melancholia, melancholia so this um, melancholia, I think is something that is less important after Wings of Desire. Um, I mentioned quickly in passing um, a few minutes ago the fact that um, um, vendors, there's a religious turn in vendors' work that happens after Wings of Desire, right? It happens in the late 80s, early 90s. And I think with that religious turn, um, this return to Christianity, broadly understood, there's also a return to hope um, and a return to lightness, um, uh, almost to comedy. Um, that's um, that maybe was not as present in, especially in the films from the 1980s. Um, um, so I, I'd say self-reflexivity, yes. Melancholia, maybe a little less, or something that I don't, I don't detect as much of in later films. Or maybe a mix of um, of of both of them. I'm thinking about a Million Dollar Hotel. Uh, maybe there is some melancholia uh, uh, there, but uh, also uh, a bit of of comedy. What do you think? Yeah. So yeah, and and, and actually, this is a good um, a good place to bring back Hopper as well, right? Uh, a lot of people think of Hopper's paintings as being heavily melancholic, nostalgic paintings, um, and um, and and Hopper himself was not particularly convinced by that reading of his work, right? You know, to him, he wasn't doing anything that was particularly nostalgic or melancholic, um, or he wasn't trying to show the emptiness of modern life through his paintings. This is something that I think modern viewers, modern um, uh, critics, um, scholars have emphasized, but that's not something that Hopper was really trying to capture in his um, paintings. I think the same is true for vendors, um, I mean, yeah, yeah, I agree with you. I mean, you know, there's uh, something nostalgic about Million Dollar Hotel. There's something nostalgic about Land of Plenty, um, and 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 possibly in other films as well. But I'm not sure that that's the core of the films. Um, I think actually, what strikes me more in Million Dollar Hotel is um, how the film is trying to um, um, to so even though it's a heavy film, it's certainly a sad film, but it's also a film that has many comedic elements, right? It's almost like a slapstick comedy. Um, and that's also something that you, that you found in Vendor's earlier films. Alice in the Cities has some of the sort of, some of those moments of slaps, slapstick comedy in a film that's very serious. So that seems very serious on the surface. So, I th so I, I, I'm not arguing against nostalgia, against melancholia, but I think what I'm arguing for is a, more general rereading, rereading of vendors' film um, under the lens of um, um, yeah of, of of comedy of um, of of the lightness of cinema of the uh, the humor that we find in seeing characters' bodies move um, on the screen. The book is organized in three parts, three main parts. Part one, watching the road trilogy in the 21st century. Part two, remaining reimagining cinema and photography with vendors. 
and part three, transnational vendors. Uh, why did you choose to organize the book in these three main sections? Yeah, so um, the organization felt very natural because it's based on the essay submissions that we received. It was interesting when we did the conference to see what people wanted to present on. Um, we suggested a number of themes, a number of ideas that we thought were important, and we actually encouraged people to think about um, uh, vendors in the past 20 years, right? So not just the more famous film by vendors, but also the films that he's done recently. It was really interesting to see that um, a number of people wanted to talk about um, and write about vendors in the 1970s, so about new German cinema, uh, films like Alice in the Cities, Wrong Move, um, or uh, Kings of the Road. Um, and so the first part of the book is actually uh, directly related to um, that particular time period, the 1970s. And it's a testament to the fact that um, both those films have um, cont or continue to be relevant, but also that the subject matter that they talk about is um, also relevant uh, to scholars in the 21st century. Um, the same is true for the other two sections, um, reimagining cinema and photography. Uh, we had essay submissions, uh, one on vendors as a photographer, one on uh, vendors and Salgado for uh, the film um, that um, vendors made with uh, Giuliano Salgado, um, the Salt of the Earth, um, and then Pina as well, uh, the documentary. And then the last section, um, I mentioned earlier in our interview that uh, transnationalism or transnational cinema was a big theme for vendors in the past 20 years. Um, this kind of uh, transition between new German cinema in the 70s, American cinema or Hollywood cinema in the 1980s, and then um, in the past 20 or 30 years, um, uh, a desire to engage more broadly with ideas and images from all over the world. So this is how the, the book was sort of, um, it's, it sort of came naturally out of the submissions from our um, presenters at the conference. So let's move on to the uh, first part, Watching the Road Trilogy in the 21st Century, which includes uh, three essays, uh, Search for the Sublime, the Road Trilogy or Vendor's Row, Men, Decision by Oliver Speck, uh, Writing in the Blood of the Past, Wrong Move and the Search for a Contemporary German Identity by Christine Eichhorn, and The Window View and the Romantic Vision of the World, Notes on a Visual Line Motif in the Films of Bean Vendors, written by Philip Scheidt. Um, what could you tell us about uh, these three essays uh, which conform the, the first part of, of the book? Yeah, so the three essays are about the films from the Road Trilogy. Um, I just mentioned them, um, Alice in the Cities, um, Kings, um, Kings of the Road, and Wrong Move. Um, maybe to give sort of a, a general overview first, um, it's kind of interesting that those are three essays that were written by German scholars or um, scholars that um, grew up in Germany. And so um, this is, um, I think it's interesting to see that um, the three films that Vendors makes that are um, about new German cinema, that are about German identity, are also uh, the films that um, uh, Germans are interested to think about, rewatch, and write about. Um, so that's, I think that's the first point. The second point is um, the three essays engage with 
um, the tradition of German Romanticism. Um, so German Romanticism uh, from the late 18th century, early uh, 19th century, um, and uh, all of them try to think about the influence of German Romanticism on German culture and society, both in, in forming German identity, but also in the aftermath of the Second World War and the aftermath, the aftermath of Nazi Germany. So, for example, uh, the uh, first essay, the one by Oliver Speck, um, is an essay that uh, considers uh, to the you know, this kind of transition between a uh, romantic uh, romantic idealism um, and uh, postmodernity, and Oliver Speck sees um, vendors and his uh, films from the Royal Trilogy as really being a moment of transition, a uh, moment where um, new identities can be articulated. And this new identity is a postmodern identity in the sense that it's an identity that's always about the absence of something, right? In, in, instead of having this sort of large presence of the sublime, this loud presence of romantic ideas, romantic value, romantic possibilities, um, we now ha- we now have absence that is written at the core of German identity. Um, in the second essay, uh, the second essay also um, looks at romantic ideals, but um, it's it's a reading of Wrong Move, uh, the film from 1974 that's uh, based on Goethe's story, so a romantic uh, novel. It's a reading of Wrong Move that uh, seeks to connect um, the um, um, ro- that seeks to connect romantic ideals with the logic of national socialism. Um, and the essay uh, explains how Wenders is trying to negotiate for um, um, for himself and for others and for his characters ways of um, dealing with the trauma of the Second World War. The third essay uh, is about windows. Um, and so windows are important in um, cinema, obviously, important photography. Um, they are lens uh, of sorts. Um, they're also an important motif in um, both a visual motif and narrative motif in uh, German romantic uh, writings and paintings. Uh, so Caspar uh, um, uh, David Friedrich um, ha- has a number of uh, paintings uh, with uh, where someone stands at a window sort of pensively. Uh, E.T. Hoffman in his, um, um, in his uh, books also uh, used the window as a motif. And um, in the essay, Philipp Scheidt tries to show um, that um, uh, the windows represent boundaries and they're boundaries that the characters have to break uh, and and so um excuse me um the the breaking the boundaries is uh, a way of breaking themselves it's an individual response to the uh, situation in germany in uh, the 1970s so it's uh, freeing freeing ourselves from the past freeing ourselves from um, the sins of our um, ancestors uh, but it's also a way of um uh, breaking the window is also a way of um deciphering a language that's incomprehensible and uh, deciphering um, a world that is full of new media and new images. Right. Now, um, let's move on to the next part, part two, reimagining cinema and photography with, with vendors, uh, which includes 
uh, three essays as if it were for the last time being vendors film and photography by George Covaros, Vender Salgado, Space, Time and Transformation in Salt of the Earth, written by Dorel Varga, and Bean Vender Spina, a cinematic homage to Pina Bausch, written by Peter Bacon. What could you tell us about these three fascinating essays? So these essays are actually very different, right? The first three essays, there was this sort of strong logical connection around German Romanticism, around the Road Trilogy. Those three essays are about very different things. And yes, what ties them together is um, Wender's ability to innovate as a filmmaker and, and as a photographer. So let me start with um, George Kuvaros' essay. Um, this is actually an essay that, um, this is a new version of an essay that had been published previously. Um, to me, this was one of the best essays that had been written on vendors. Uh, George Kuvaros is a brilliant scholar, um, beautiful writer, and um, I really wanted him to come to the conference to help us think about the importance of photography in vendors' work. Um, and so um, this is an essay that's um, about understanding the vendor's approach to photography. Um, photography for vendors is both a way, it's both presentational, so it's both a way of capturing a moment. Uh, but vendors um, throughout his work, whether it's uh, photography or also in his films, um, also makes us think about um, images as uh, ghosts, right? As um, in the sense that um, they're, uh, once we've seen images, once we've um, experienced them, they continue living with us um, as ghosts. Um, this is um, uh, something that's uh, also important in relation to um, the intermedial work that we mentioned previously. Um, why is Vendors revisiting Hoppe's paintings? Why is Vendors recreating Vermeer's paintings? Is because to him, those paintings are images that function as ghosts in his memory, in his visual memory. The second essay um, by Daryl Varga is on Salt of the Earth. Um, and this is one of the essays on a more recent film. So a film that was made in 2014. Um, this is a film that Vendors uh, co-directed um, with Giuliano Salgado, the son um, of the photographer, um, Sebastian Salgado. Um, and Daryl Varga has written about vendors and documentaries. And it was important for him to understand how um, vendors' documentary filmmaking has evolved over the past um, 20, 30, 40 years. Um, and so um, he sees in, um, in vendors and Salgado a connection in the sense that both of them are photographers, both of them are um, interested in images, interested in storytelling. And um, for me, the, uh, the most interesting um, line of the essay perhaps is um, how um, Daryl Varga uh, uses Benjamin's phrase, the wreckage of human history. And to him, both vendors and Salgado are photographers that help us connect with the wreckage of human history in the second part of the 20th century and in the 21st century. The third essay um, is on Pina. Uh, uh, so Pina, Pina Bausch, the famous German choreographer. Um, this is written by Peter Beiken, 
who actually uh, comes from Wuppertal. Wuppertal is the place in Germany where Pina's um, dance company was is still located. Uh, it's where Pina moved in the 1970s. It's still located there today, the Wuppertal Tanztheater. Um, and for Peter Beiken actually experienced um, Pina's work when he was younger um, in the 1970s. And he's fascinated by this film. He's fascinated by the film for different reasons. Um, the first reason is because it shows that Wenders is someone who's uh, not just concerned with cinema. He's someone who's deeply concerned with other art, art forms. Um, um, we've talked about intermediality and different media. And this dance is a different language, right? There's a language of cinema and there's a language of dance. And um, the essay shows that um, it was important for Wenders to translate the language of dance into the world, into the medium of cinema. Um, the second reason why the essay is important is because this is the one essay in the book that talks about uh, vendors' um, um, experimentation with 3D technology. Um, it's actually um, easy to forget that vendors is a pioneer in the uh, realm of 3D technology. Um, so. 3D was used in Hollywood films. Um, some of them are, you know, Hugo, for example, Scorsese, uh, Avatar. But what Venice was interested in doing was something different. He wanted to use 3D technology for um, documentary filmmaking. And so Pina is really one of the first documentaries uh, that tries to capture the three-dimensionality of dance. And for that purpose, vendors had to uh, work with completely new technology, um, had to work with people that were making cameras and making new uh, 3D cameras, and had to deal with the fact that the technology in 2009, 2010 was not perfect yet. So it's a film also, it's a film about Pina Bausch and memorializing Pina Bausch, who died um, just a few years before um, the film was made. But it's also a film about the evolution of cinema, the evolution, the technological of evolution of cinema, um, and uh, the fact that 3D cameras get better and better at the same time. But also the evolution of cinema in the sense that 3D is a new filmic language. Um, it's a new filming language that we have to learn to speak. The directors have to learn to speak it. The audience has to learn to speak that language. And um, this is an important part of the essay, the, this, uh, the, the technological dimension of Vendor's work. Right. And finally, um, the part three, um, entitled Transnational Vendors. Um, so this final part includes four essays, uh, multi-track and transcultural narratives in Wim Wenders' works by Simone Malaguti. I can imagine anything. The European project in Wim Wenders' Wings of Desire, written by Mine Erin, Blandness and Just Seeing in the films of Wim Wenders, written by William Baker, and The Heart of Things, Wim Wenders and the Evocations of Peace, written by Mary Zurnazi. Um, what could you tell us about uh, this final part of the book? So it's it's um, it's a section that is full of important ideas and important contributions. My favorite contribution in the book, my favorite essay, is Mina Erin's essay um, on um, Wings of Desire. 
and um, Berlin. And it's an important essay because I think we tend to think of vendor cinema as being very white, right? It's very European. It's very white. It's very male-centric. And what Mina Ehren is doing is uh, she's remembering watching Wings of Desire as a young Turkish immigrant um, she was. She's the daughter of a Turkish immigrant, so she was born in Germany. Uh, she's German, but she's um, she has she's um, culturally Turkish, and she remembers seeing Wings of Desire in 1987 when it came out, and to her, this was the first time that she saw herself being represented in the film. So this is a dimension of Wings of Desire that we have a tendency to forget or to not even notice is that it is also a film about immigrants, about a multicultural um, Berlin. Um, and it's about not showing just white Germany, uh, white European Germany, but this very sort of um, multicultural um, um, Berlin where there are influences from all over the world. There are uh, people speaking in Arabic. There are people speaking in Turkish. Um, the angels sort of follow both uh, the old German who was alive uh, during the 1930s, but also people who've just immigrated and have a very different life. And so she, I think she writes a beautiful essay on Berlin as a transnational space um, and on how vendors is able to challenge concepts of home, concepts of belonging, concepts of citizenship through the film. Um, so this is kind of a completely new reading of Wings of Desire as a film that subverts fantasies of cultural homogeneity. Um, I think it's a, it's a very well done essay. Um, this is probably my favorite one of, of, of the whole book. Um, there's another important essay on blendness. So this is uh, the essay by William Baker, um, where we come back to Yasujiro Ozu um, and um, also a concept that uh, François Julien, the French theorist, has developed, the concept of blendness, which is the representation of things that are just extremely normal. So everyday things, um, um, everyday objects, things that we don't really notice. Um, and so blandness is this idea that we have everyday objects, everyday scenes um, that show us, that acknowledge the universal qualities of human experience. Um, this is something that um, is very visible in Ozu's films, um, uh, the sort of s slow pace, uh, desire to observe the everyday, desire to just capture the everyday life of Japanese people in a particular time period. And uh, William Baker shows that this is also something that we see in um, Wings of in, um, in Vendor's films, especially in Paris, Texas, Alice in the Cities, films from the 70s and 80s, where there's a desire to see the world without expressing judgment. Right. And this goes along with things that I've mentioned earlier in the interview, uh, the fact that Vendus is not always um, excited or is not always wanting to tell um, well-crafted stories, but that he wants to leave space for those moments when we just are, when we just live with the characters, those unimportant moments. Um, Vendus famously said that um, when he films, he always uh, cuts the shots three or four seconds after it's finished, right? So he always sort of leaves the action continue for three or four seconds because to him, this is this, this is, those are the moments when life happens. And so um, it's, I think it's important to have this idea, the, uh, um, the concept of blindness as a concept to help us understand why vendors' films sometimes feel slower, why they feel like the pace is a little off. It's because there is this desire to acknowledge the presence of the everyday. Um, let me mention um, 
Actually, you know, a quote from Tokyo Ga. Um, uh, I know you, you, you. We talked about the film earlier a little bit. The influence of Ozu. Um, so something that um, connects a lot of the things that we that we've been talking about is a quote from Tokyo Ga, where it's at the beginning of Tokyo Ga, where Venda says, "My point is just to look without wanting to prove anything." Right? Um, and I think that's that's um, that's that's a nice way of connecting it to blandness, uh, this idea of there's nothing to show, there's nothing to prove, there's nothing to tell. We are just looking, we are just making images, right? Just the making of images in itself is relevant. That's important. Let me finish maybe with the last essay of the collection, uh, the one by Mary Zornazi. Um, so we talked about Mary Zornazi. She co-wrote the book Inventing Peace with vendors. Um, and she was very um, nice. And um, um, she came to the conference and gave a keynote address and then uh, sent us this very interesting essay. It's not, it doesn't really read like a scholarly essay, like an academic essay. It's almost more, more of a um, sort of poetic reflection on the nature of filmmaking. Um, Zunazi is lucky because she spent 10 years in conversation with vendors. Uh, she's worked with him closely. She knows him very well as a person. She's been in dialogue with him for, for so long. She also knows his films very well. And so um, her essay, I think, gives us more of a personal look at what it means to live with vendors' films. Um, this is something that I've experienced myself because um, by writing this book and teaching a class on vendors for the past five, six, seven years, I've lived in Vendor's world. Um, I've lived with his films. I've lived with his characters. I've revisited the films over and over again. I've seen them now five, six, seven, ten times. Um, and so there are a number of things that start showing up, that start becoming evident once you rewatch the film multiple times and again and, and over and over again. Um, this, the, what, what Mary Zornazi says is that um, in the end, Vendors as a commitment to indispensable images, right? So it's not about making more and more images. We live in a culture, uh, whether it's the social media culture or the television culture before it, where there's this proliferation of images. There's always more things to see, more things to watch. And uh, for vendors, there's a danger to this because um, images tend to separate us from the world. Um, what is really looking, really trying to do is to make those images that matter, make those indispensable images, um, those images that are potent enough to be transformative. And so this is this commitment to indispensable images that drives his work. And Zonazi's essay does a great job at showing us how this functions in Vendor's work. Well, Professor Dellers, um, we've taken up a lot of your time. Before we end our interview, um, I wonder if you could tell us about what research project uh, you are working on now. Yeah, sure. Um, so I'm I'm still doing some work on vendors. Um, the introduction for the um, edited volume, um, Making Films That Matters, is only 20 pages, but I could have written, we could have written 60 pages, probably could have written a book if we wanted to. So there was enough there um, to expand upon. And so what I'm doing is I'm um, taking some of the ideas from the introduction and turning them into separate essays. So I've got one essay on Lisbon story that I'm working on, on the idea of the kaleidoscope, um, and also uh, trying to think about vendors um, always working with different collaborators, whether it's Peter Hanke, uh, Ozu, so dead collaborators, collaborators that are alive. 
Um, I have another essay on Pina, um, again, a more recent film. Uh, it's called European Utopias and Heterotopias in Pina, trying to use uh, Foucault's concept of heterotopia and to think about the Europeanness of the film. And then um, I have one last essay that I'm finishing on uh, vendors and Hopper. So uh, trying to think, especially in about Million Dollar Hotel, as a film that is reimagining Hopper's universe. So those are some of the things that I've been working on in the past few uh, few months and few years. Oh, that sounds great. I'm really looking forward to reading your your new works. Um, thank you so much for talking with us today. Um, all the luck and success for what is coming, Professor Dellers. Thank you. Thank you so much. It was your host, Gustavo Gutierrez-Suarez. See you on the next episode of New Books in Film. Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.